Welcome to Surprise Multiplayer Episode 4. Today, we talk about Warhammer 40K, internet connections, saving email, and as always, lots of side tangents and little stories, including the complete failure to plug in a single goddamn cable. Anyway, what does it matter here is more of Jeremy and John. So this week in the Northeast, we didn't have quite as much rain as Florida had, but we had a little bit of rain Sunday and I woke up and my internet wasn't working. Actually, it wasn't Sunday. It was Tuesday morning. But that's And as a technology person, I go downstairs, I unplug the room, <laughs> unplug everything, <laughs> just replug it back in, reboot the reboot the uh, mesh network and sitting there watch, looking at my watch, making sure the kid's eating breakfast, still not working. Wait, and I have mesh, another five-year-old. Mesh network? Mesh network. I'm going to come back and pick on you for that one soon. You can pick on me as, uh, you pick on me as much as you want, but mesh network, I, I'm going to stand behind nope, that choice. Put in Ethernet. Well, I do have Ethernet. Good. In every room? Yeah. Wherever every television would be, yeah. Except for my office, but that's that doesn't make any sense, but it hits what the builder did. Okay. Bye. <laughs> so Verizon Fios is out and again lightly raining outside no reason to think that there's any there's no power outage nothing like that takes me about an hour after I get the kids ready to go to school drop off at daycare I go outside and yeah the power unit is it has water in it inside of its inside of its uh waterproof IP67 case doesn't seem very waterproof now the first the first thing to mention here is that when Verizon installed Fios at my house, it didn't, they came in, they actually installed when I bought my house and they arrived, said hello, installed it in about 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes. It didn't take that long. And then they were gone and there was a power unit outside completely from the ONT on the side of the house on the grass. Wait. I, I, so I mean, yeah. I, I need a mental image of this. So they have the little the box that they normally put in the own the tape, and then they have the normally the packet that goes on the inside of the house, which is like the battery, so you can have Verizon Photos if your power goes out, so that you can have not that was on the outside of my house. Okay, that's not water resistant. That's not how it should be installed. Yes, that's right? not only that's so, really wrong. It's really wrong. And I told and I explained it to Verizon on the phone, and they're like, "We don't know what you're talking about. We have certified installers. You already have it installed. What are you asking us to do?" Eventually, I got to a point where my internet was working, so I just went and bought one of those garden boxes with an IP67 that you put those cheap Amazon ones and stuck it in there outside and in the corner. No one really cared for three years until, I guess, something cracked it and filled up. I thought this was going to be a story about how Verizon fucked up, but I, yeah. well, I, we both fucked okay, up. Okay, as long as you both <laughs> fucked up. Because you had an opportunity like, get the fuck out here and have somebody fix it. Be like, it's yeah. easier to buy something online and mount it to the wall rather than get them back. It wasn't even mounted to the wall. It was on the ground. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> you want to know the most fucked up thing uh i bought a when i first bought it on amazon i, I wasn't paying attention i was at like a stoplight 
And I bought a black one and my OCD was so bad that I, when I bought a green one, <laughs> I needed to be green. So when this thing finally broke and there was water in this thing and I almost electrocuted myself getting it out of the water, I went and I went under the house and got the green <laughs> that was still there because I was too lazy to go send it back. Please describe <laughs> the current state of your internet connection in your house and its power. So Verizon came to my house. He looks at me and says, that ain't right. <laughs> oh, so you did get somebody finally to come out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He came out. It took him all day. They told me on the phone. I, they said, they'll be there today. And I said, okay, what time? They said, I just told you today. <laughs> no joke. That's what he said to me. And I was like, dope. Got it. He said, probably by the end of the day, five o'clock. <laughs> I was like, thanks, buddy. And sure enough, 515, they're there. And he comes there. He's, this isn't right. He's, that should not be on the outside. And then he asked me, did you put it in this box? I was like, yes, sir, I did. <laughs> but in my defense, it was on the grass. Did you tell him how long it had been in, in a box, not that box? Oh, yeah. I told him it was like three years. <laughs> he just put the box on my porch and walked away. <laughs> I'm glad he, I, I would have, I, I think he should have taken it and been like, in case I ever want to fuck around with somebody else, I'm just going to do that to somebody else's if I next time. Bob, can't think of anything like that's happened. I've been here for seven years, six years, and I pretty much have most things figured out now. So I have a generator, I have batteries for all my stuff, everything, so, like just everything, young, my network doesn't go down. Talking about network. I bought, this is an older home that got remodeled. And part of the house, it's brick and there's, there's a lot of insulation between. So a, a wireless access point in one area of the house doesn't really penetrate to the back of the okay. house. So a mesh network poked up over ethernet is what, I, what makes the most sense here. Works perfectly fine. On the John is lazy. Yeah, but but if you're running Ethernet to each room, that's not a mesh network. That's still not a mesh. Eh. I was, I didn't lie to you when I said Ethernet's are run to every room in my house. What I didn't what I didn't tell you is when I bought the house, the builder never crimped the other ends, and they're still not crimped in my basement. So you do you need me to send you? I got a power line over Ethernet because I didn't want to crimp the. No. You have Ethernet going to the destination you want, but you use power over Ethernet over P Mocha B, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, Mocha yeah. or no, sorry, power over yeah. Ethernet because a crimping a Cat forty five was too much. No, that's not the reason why. I did. I have testers and a crimp tool, and it's the first thing I Good. did. What the builder did is, and I only know this because I, I went into the walls and looked at the wire there's a different wire in the walls in the top floor than there is in the basement for that same run so he ran out of wire and misconnected the oh. the wires in the ceiling oh. and now i actually need to sit there and go through every single wire to see which one is which color because he didn't uh, hook it up due to the iso standard you can put a, you, I, i'll send you my fluke if, I have a tester. We'll, we'll I, do a pin out. You'll do it on each case, on each side. Of, I we'll just sit there and say, okay, these cables are crossed. You got to do this. Trust me. I spent a few hours trying to get this done one day. I felt like an idiot because I used to do this professionally 20 years ago. 
and I couldn't get, so I'm fairly certain that they messed something up in the wall connecting these two things because have, because I'm not able to actually get signal to all eight ones. They fucked it up. Yeah. But they, it's probably a screw and it holding it in place or they stapled. Probably. Oh, it's probably, probably what it is. Screw stapled it something. against into a stud. Hey, we're like, you're supposed to put this in. Fucking chodes. Yes. Instead of what I want to do is pay someone just to come and do it. But then likely that payment will turn into a huge job because they'll rip the wall yeah. open. Fish, fishing cable ether isn't too hard. I don't mind it on a reasonable place. It's just, you already have some existing cables. If you can pull them, yeah, yeah, I found something. But you do have to end up painting no matter what. You're going to have to get some fishing, some hole someplace. But yeah, um, but yeah, the my house has got everything well designed. I wish in my garage I ran Ethernet to my desktop, which I use Wi-Fi for my desktop in my office, but that's but not it. You're, in your house, that's really, that run is what, only 25 feet? Yeah, but it's in, I have an access point in the the other half of my garage. So I'm the, my office slash gym and garage are all one. So I have an ethernet into the garage, but it's in the front part. And I didn't run another ethernet through to the back side of the office where I sit, which actually for podcasts would be wonderful to have an ethernet and not have any wireless issues or any jitter or any of that. We both, we're both on wireless yeah. right now. And the very least I see some jitters yeah. that probably do to the Wi-Fi. But so my home has no issues except for if we lose power around 45 minutes, not my own team because it's got battery, but because I'm on the same grid as the, the, the hub for the fiber distribution, it will run out of battery in around 45 minutes and the internet goes out and I'm debating on getting a Starlink. You really need your internet that bad for how often does your power go out? Uh, it's the only thing left. Nothing like power goes out and nobody notices. Like we literally get people like get texts from neighbors like power's out. I'm like, oh, I don't give a shit. No. And it's wonderful. And now I'm at the point where just one little thing not working 45 yeah. minutes later. That pisses me off. I'm like, do I spend the money? That's a lot of money per month because it's gone up in price again. It's like a 50, it was $50 a month. Is it no, more it was than 99 a month. Now it's up to 120 a month. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that yeah. expensive. I'll tell you what, though. I, I talked to someone this week on a Teams conference call for about an hour, and they were using a Starlink business edition. So I know it's slightly different. In the, it was clearly cloudy outside, and there was very little, if at all, problems. He put up a few satellites. <laughs> it's impressive it's, to say the least but it's an awesome bit of technology if i was in an rv or i'm probably like if i ever buy the place in vermont or get a place in vermont got it get one of those because it's just too useful to have when you have something as unreliable as vermont or something like that we were when we were originally looking for moving from a condo to a house we were looking in an area south of washington dc that would have required something like Starlink for uh, broadband because they didn't have any. That's don't. crazy. That's it's and it's only an hour and it's only an hour and ten minutes south of DC. It's right on the Chesapeake Bay in southeastern Virginia, okay. like probably 150 200 miles north of maybe not that many miles, but an hour or so north of Richmond. And uh, that's like between Annapolis and Richmond, isn't it? 
Yes. Okay. Like the, the Virginia. Literally, between... that's a very densely populated area, I would think, except for this area. It's, it's densely populated until you get south of Quantico. So once you're about a, a 45 minutes to an hour south of D.C., then it becomes very like country. Huh. And if you go really east to the Chesapeake Bay, the only you have barely have cell phone connectivity. There's no LTE. Really? And the only internet you can get there is DSL or high speed internet is DSL. Wow. I remember. Wow. That brings me way back to like speakeasy.net days and DSL. Speakeasy. Oh my God. CompuServe. Such a weird time. Remember when our, I, you didn't work for him. I worked for a guy, Dave Waisaki. I'm going to have to cut out his name. He wanted, he, we were working at a head, at a IconNet Quest Communications, which was a telco. And they wouldn't get one year. They didn't give him bonuses. So they weren't doing any of that, but he was like, he's pissed off and he's read a T1 to my house. So they did in 2000 and in the year 2000, he had a T1 installed to his house, which, which was like $10,000 a month yeah, or something. Insane. It was insane. Yeah. But for a telco, it's just one of those things that you write off like business expense. Bang. But see, that's something I'd ask yeah. for back then. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. T1 back then was awesome it was symmetrical of course. yeah so i mean 1.5 megabit was in and of itself amazing back then but the fact that it was symmetrical and guaranteed, guaranteed. back when they guaranteed what we said uh, is what you're going to get and you expected that it was awesome it was better than literally being on the internet at most office buildings it was it's probably still not that the experience is it requires more bandwidth but still it'd be a pretty damn good solution for today to get guaranteed yeah. bandwidth like you, yeah you probably get a seat commercially yeah. you can but even commercial residential even with the fiber they're only going to give you guaranteed bandwidth because their pairing points are just crushed right. so they can't guarantee anything anymore but yeah that's an amazing yes. benefit i wouldn't that's something i definitely oh it was awesome i for. took forever to install because he lived on a hill and i mean he oh, had like sure. six well the installation alone oh, i imagine this, was fifty thousand dollars custom installation the crew came through four times to map out the the lines and i'm like this is a hell of a perk good for him yeah it worked out well though during 911 that's where we went to make sure we're still online during 911 yeah. is that what you said because me and him kept the data center running and then went there after the after hours because we had everybody go home, but we got there pretty late and we could still access guaranteed bandwidth, guaranteed connectivity. We didn't have anything to worry about. We're like, we can take care of an administrator or anything. That was the days where we had a firewall, we had SSH port open up and we had SSH keys to get through the firewall because man, nobody else is going to do anything with that. So I have a quite an interesting, we touch a little bit on subject of managing applications for customers and during national disasters. Um, I was working for a large company at one point during Sandy and we were in the middle of automating a lot of the infrastructure. And during Sandy, the difficult thing when the power went out was ha having to your point earlier, having the internet access. Right. And the power went out in DC with Sandy probably for about a day or two. It wasn't as bad as New Jersey or, or Connecticut where you're at, but in Washington, DC, the power went out and I had about an hour be 
to manually fail over a data center. And when I say manually fail over, this isn't today where you click a button in the cloud. It's I got to use a SSH key and log into every single machine because I was in the middle of the week, the migration week where we were going to pull the trigger and actually do the automation, but we hadn't tested it yet in production. So I had to manually go through and, and fail everything over. And then most people don't know this, but at one point, Sandy, it looked like it was going to uh, go more inland yes. into New Jersey at one point. That changed. And so did halfway through my failover, so did the target of where I needed to fail over back to. Wait, wait. So you're <laughs> telling me you were starting to fail over for one scenario, then you go, nope. Manually. Oh, hold on. Let me paint the picture for you. I was failing over from data center A to data center B with the power out on a MacBook using a T-Mobile tethered connection. That is awesome. Go. What is it awesome? <laughs> you win. I'm going to give you, I think I've done something more dangerous and I fucked it up bigger because. Oh, I didn't fuck I it up. My up. <laughs> I fucked my up bad. I, it's Dick Sweeney contest time now with this shit. I was, I was on the wrong router. Everyone's had a story like that before. Yes, but I worked at the second largest internet backbone at the time. I pulled all of North America's traffic over through the UK. All of it. Every single thing. Wow. Every single route. Keep uh, talking. No, I please. just messed up my BGP. Uh, I thought I was in a wrong, the right route. I was on the wrong router. I advertised out via BGP. I was not in May East. I was in a slough in the UK. And suddenly, oh, man. the entire world thought the closest route for North America was in Slough. No, that's amazing. Every transit route to every single major transit provider there was had a new faster BGP path. It was a very fast hundred, a very fast connection. It wasn't that fast. But five minutes. Hat tip, sir. The, five minutes later, the router began rebooting. Thank fucking God, because it locked my session out. Because I was in North America. <laughs> All right. So, John, I think I'm going to go back. What, why, what I want to talk about here is email. I love email. I think it's the greatest technology we've used in computers for a long time since the internet's been around. I don't think it's used effectively anymore. I think there's huge problems with it across the internet. But as we talked about, okay, inside of a company, it's such an awesome tool to use. It's the best universal communication. It just works so goddamn well. And it's a problem between companies. It's a problem between people. People have given up on it because spam. Because there's no real way to deal with the onslaught of whatever you get in your inbox. And so you can have the best spam filters and it's just whack-a-mole. It's an endless shitstorm of whoever would like to spend a very few bits of dollars to send things to 100,000 people they can do. And I think that I can And for us in IT, for us in IT, it's not just spam from external actors. It's spam from everyday automation. Mm -hmm. It's spam from things that we turn ourselves off to almost email as a, an appropriate communication mechanism because now we're, it, it's like a notification. Yeah. Well, it's a side tangent. But I think Slack's turned that into, into that for me. Because we built so many True. awesome automations that all I see is automations. Now I don't use the tool anymore. But I, I, I think email can be solved 
And I wanted to talk about it with you because I thought I could, and I wanted to use the conversation we have to see if it would work, to bat around the idea and explain. So I have what the technical idea and then how I think we can actually get the industry to change. And I think the incentives are aligned to change the industry if done right with the right companies and the right cover operation. So the observation that I want to make is that um, email's fundamental problem is that there is no truth on origin of sender. Its fundamental problem is yeah. well, inherently a trust and why, but yeah, I think we've gotten to the point. We all recommend that, that, but let's, what is the use cases and what are the valid use cases for unauthenticated senders, spam, and somebody being able to forward messages and say, you're from jeremyrossi.com because you went and signed up for Salesforce and you want that to work. You mean as like the per, a ratio of No, messages. the use cases are limited. I, I got They're you. very limited. Yeah. And I think that what you can do is if you just switch the paradigm, very simply, that the only way you can email outbound for a particular domain, authoritative domain via SPF records or whatever, MX-like records, is you have to go and send by the destination, the, the origin service. So the idea being is if you want to send, if I want to, as a person that's on my own custom G domain on the Gmail, and I want to go give Salesforce the right to send email as me, I go and I log into Salesforce. Salesforce will then do an authentication for an OAuth token to Gmail, and I can give them a temporary period of time token and authorization by OAuth to Gmail to send on my behalf through Gmail servers. And that's the most important thing is now Salesforce has to, they don't get to send email to Office 365 directly. They call into Google's SMTP and say, here's my token. I am permission send as Jeremy Rossi for the next year. Then those servers receive that and then they send it off at, uh, to somebody on Outlook.com. The whole point begins to get to, so that the authoritative to send as me is always the server that is also able to receive by me. And by doing that, I've created and aligned the incentives correctly is if I host, I as being able to send myself at jeremyrossi.com hosted on Google, I can send from there. I've already figured out how to do that because that's how my primary it, but if I want to give that permission away to Salesforce or Monk, uh, sales, whatever quiz program, whoever, I have to actively do it. And I have to ask them, I can't just say, please send as Jeremy Rossi and have it work. I have to go and say, give them permission over a period of time. And we have all the tools, OAuth, OpenID, Connect. There is no bit of technology that isn't available to let this happen. We have DKIM, we have SPF records, we have DMARC. Great. Let's just make it so that you can't send unless you're authorized to receive as me. Now, Gmail has a huge incentive to do something like this because now they get to control more aspects of my as a paying customers. They're now the middleman. Right. And they get to be the true owner of my relationship with email. Choose that to be good or not, but I could that brings the market back to, hey, they got a better offer a better product. They have to do that. And that's a really awesome thing for them. They don't have to deal with as much spam. I can reject tokens at Gmail at any point in time in the future saying, hey, I don't want to deal with Salesforce anymore. They sent too much spam for uh, on my behalf. And I, I you took HubSpot, whatever, bam, rejected in Gmail. I, as the customer in my Gmail, control who can send via that paradigm. 
I think it could really work. And I think the incentives are aligned for three major companies, Microsoft, Google, Apple. Yeah. So what's wrong with it? Tell me what, why it won't work. In a perfect world where the current state that is emailed today does not exist, this would work. And what I mean by that is a person today is, has to capture so much email because that's, it's what they're currently doing. The only way you could do what you're describing is almost like rebranding or reversioning email 1.0, email 2.0. But I don't, because, I don't think so. well, think about how much it would take to lift and change the existing workflows for all these companies. Honestly, 99.95% of email that I get, and I'm sure everyone listening gets is useless fucking marketing spam yep. or scams or things that have, and it's only going to get worse. Hey, but, but if you take the idea and you, you play it out, it doesn't get worse because you have to have an authority or it has to be transient domains. So if you are going to use Gmail to send to me on Gmail, the incentive is on Google to stop that. If you're on jeremyrossi.com to send me from Gmail, Gmail controls the flow of outbound emails to from their domain. So remember, like I said, if Salesforce wants to send to jeremyrossi.com, in order to send it as Gmail, they have to go to Gmail servers and then have but, them forward it. I understand, but practically, how would you, how would a provider, mm -hmm. let's use Gmail on this, Practically, how would Google enable that up? So what they would do is like you go through and you sit there and say, how would they enable, wait, wait, pause. I want to be clear. We would, at some point in time, it has to get to the point where we are only going to accept emails yes. okay. from authoritative sources. And in order to get there, everybody's going to need to participate in this program of signing up websites to be able to send on your behalf. And if they don't, they will eventually drop off. But the thing that matters is, is if you are using, I keep on using Salesforce, but Salesforce sends us somebody else's email. Yeah. It's a perfect example, valid business use case. That would not work without interaction, without somebody going and making that assertion that they want this to be able to continue selling as Jeremy. So but it's, on, it's on the person that wants the thing to keep on happening. That's the reason why I like the idea is that if I want it to work, I have to take that active choice on some kind of schedule. And yes, things would break, but I think there's enough oomph behind the three big players to. I, I, I do agree with that. So I, I, I was confused with the initial premise that, but yes, if you can get the three biggest players and at that point you could effectively create email in the way that you described and it would get, and it would solve the, just like we just said, 99.98, whatever percent of the junk. That, that most people have does, in email. It, and, and the reason why they don't trust email. Right, but it, it actually doesn't solve the spam problem 
It just means that the spam problem ha can't hide as valid centers. I do not have a problem for spam. If you're going to go register gobbledygookblubblubblub.com, I can't stop because the whole point is you are authoritative to send as that domain. But the thing of the matter is that kind of technology is solvable because it's not half real, half fake and that kind of stuff. It's going to be pretty, the spam filters work, I, I think. I feel like an actual, we talk, an actual web of trust between email providers mm -hmm. here with the ability to basically blacklist people just like you have with TLS. You could kill yeah. spam. But I don't think you could. I also think it could be used for downsides to not allow incumbent players to come up to speed. So let's say Proton Mail picks up. Like, uh, not only that, you could, you could silence mm -hmm. people. There are legitimate reasons why a system, you need to think through a system that is, has an ultimate, some type of authority. Web of trust is particularly hard because, but I was trying not to get to user level web of trust. I wanted to get back to the internet I liked, which was where people felt like, hey, if it came from sun.com, it's probably sun.com. In so I feel like uh, I am not as up to speed on email technologies as I probably should be, but I feel like domain authentication, like DNSSEC and things like that exist. Now, are they used appropriately is a different question, but I feel that there are likely ways that you could chain together things that should work to do this Yeah, in a way that you can have a trust. So this is why I thought my idea was brilliant. Hey, go figure that. I love my own fucking idea. Who does it? Is because if the big three, the valid people that are, the incentive is right now is really bad in that the sales force has no incentive to participate in a system to make it better. Because all they want to do is get the emails in front of customers as they told the customers they always have. But the second Gmail says, you cannot send as jeremyrossi.com unless you first send through us. And that means their business relationship with me is at risk. And the incentives for them to play by the game makes sense. And it doesn't require me to do it. It requires my hosting provider to do it. It takes the big well, your Well, your email hosting provider on your right. behalf, right? And I can move to somebody else, but I don't think there's... That, that complicates things because now it's the whole transfer yeah. shit of domain registrars. Oh, yes. But image records already handle that. There's no... Oh, oh, oh no. Well, you, but what you are doing, it would be a lot harder because right. you need to issue... So there yeah. is a fundamental problem because that temporary token yeah. that I was... Had out... You need a certificate authority, which actually is a record. I Can't think be. it does exist there. But yeah, that is a problem that if... Because if I wanted to, because let's say you used OAuth to get the assertions and the, the certificate to send to Gmail on my behalf for a period of time, that you would need to have to do that and take that with you. Or you'd have to build a process by which you could transfer that assertion as your part of your migration field. Yeah. I don't want it to be in DNS because that's going to be a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, everything, DNS has become like the 1980s poor man key value yeah. store of uh, the infrastructure, internet infrastructure. I don't want to, I'm like, what else is wrong with it? What else is the, what, why won't this work? I think it, it seems I think too the simple. Biggest, 
Brilliant. The simple part is the technology, I think. The hard part is getting people and companies to adopt it because yes, your incentives are aligned, but you're not, they're not really aligned for capitalism, right? Like people want to be able to send unsolicited or companies want to be able to send unsolicited marketing email to people because they're going to get someone to click on it. I wonder how much spam wastes the time of Outlook in Microsoft in storage. Is it enough for them to care? You th they're charging their co the, the companies to host all of that. Why would they care? Yeah, that they're, uh, God damn it. God. All right. I need to think some more, but I think, yeah, the incentive, like the incentives could work, but you still need, it, you have to convince the big three that email should be the dominant intercommunication protocol and that they should stop creating new chat programs that they're going to fail at. There is no difference today between the late nineties, early two thousands, ICQ, AIM, Yahoo, IRC, Trillium, like all. Th those hundred different instant messaging platforms and the fact that we have what team slack whatsapp discord yeah whatsapp there's no difference that the apps have gotten better over the last 20 it's only been 22 years since that the apps have gotten better we have mobile devices it's the same it's the same problem yeah i still think email can be the difference, but if you, the reason why email is amazing is because it is truly Federated. the only communication mechanism that we can have that isn't owned by a company. It's truly federated. And because they didn't get a chance to try to destroy it and take market share and have capitalism win where they get to control the customers. Yeah. I still think it can be fixed, but you're right. They also, you, I don't think there is anything wrong with email. I think the problem is with trusting who you want to communicate with. I know you're, you believe in the web of trust so that you want to take it all the way to the user. I think I'm trying to get email to be useful. Like it was in 1999. I'm not trying to make it like it today. Like, so, so let me uh, ask you this slide. question. No, let me ask you this. Let's yeah. finish about email and not go on a web of trust. What? To you, what does it really mean to fix email? Why, wh like, why couldn't you just create another app? Because it's the only and use an email address format and have a call it something else. I truly think the pawns of like inside of a, companies, inside of institutions where email is still the dominant flow of communication, that can continue beyond if we don't let it die. And I'm worried that because the personal email has just sat there and festered with spam and infinite signups and infinite you know, crap that you get in there, that we're going to lose any federated model for communication. And I want to keep that. I, maybe I'm, so let's get a little radical. Okay. Why couldn't you design a decentralized communications protocol and call it email too, give away clients 
and tell people to use it because, and sure, maybe, yeah, there's still going to be email, but you build an email 1.0 bridge and you make it seamless for everyone on the outside and the inside to communicate. But anyone in the new world has a whole bunch of new open features that they can now take leverage, namely, uh, I don't know, boosting conversation. There's a whole bunch right. of things you could do. Uh, I don't think. I, like I said, I am not, I am running towards something not new, not innovative. I'm running backwards in time. And that's, that, that's the part. But you're running backwards towards it. You're running backwards in time towards an experience, uh, some nostalgic place we were in when email was the only communication mechanism. There, there's nothing different between how we communicated over email 25 years ago and text message like really the difference is how you as jeremy you, you treat those two different things in your mind no um email is asynchronous it is it doesn't have no, to be but that's one of the attributes but that's how but that's how we've grew up no, and we've no, trained ourselves that. to but it, that's the value proposition like i see of this it's an asynchronous way to Everyone expects it to be well, asynchronous. Therefore, it's that communication mechanism, the asynchronous communication mechanism is the value. One of them. Is that you want to get Two to. things. One is asynchronous, I think is fundamentally, but still pretty fast. Federated. Yep. And of course. And, and that's the two most important things. And number one, and, and technically the third is that identity can be purchased independent of the email system itself, such as domains. So that like jeremyrossi.com, which is my domain, I can purchase via normal register. I think that problem's by and large solved. And I can move it from register like we can with SMTP servers, go pay, move from fastmail to Gmail or whoever. I think that's really important. I also think that it's really important that it's federated. Okay, I'm going to step back for a second and ask the question a different cool. way. What if email, the protocol stayed the same communication mechanism, everything. And instead you could connect to a VPN where the people in that VPN with that email service, you trust it. That's what I'm basically you have a different experience than when you did in the public internet. That's basically what I'm proposing is that. Instead of it being, like I said, instead of in order to receive email, you must be participating. You have an authority trust, the DNS system that assigns you the ability to receive email at jeremyrossi.com. That is overall authority and is respected throughout the internet by and large. I want to add that the, roughly the same way that you have delegation of authority, that you del delegate authority for sending email and not via some complicated crypto, but that might be necessary at some point. But the whole point being is that this person that receives email is also the sender for that damn domain. And it makes a huge amount of the spoofing and problems fall away. And you get, get not, not to bring up the web of trust, you get a web of trust inherently. It's just at a different See, level than what you, I think you're talking about. But, but, you, but you understand, uh, I know you do, that the easiest way to do this, to implement what you're talking about, if we were to 
get funding and, and build a startup. And we wanted to build an awesome email client that, that it, people can trust. The way to do this practically would be to build a web of trust and for the, the email client itself to categorize the emails coming in differently based on if it if the web of trust actually worked in this case. I think that could work, but uptake at user level is inherently slow. And so if you don't get to critical mass, Is yeah, it though? PGP. Everyone using your product would now be using secure email 2.0. We can uh, go on forever. I don't think the complexity sure. will, will work in that place. I think the complexity absorbed into the provider is the right place to take that on. Because if I can sit there, I, I use Google. Google's good at running services. And Google's pretty good at creating a user experience that's reasonable. And I would much rather them have the responsibility of being that trust and keep it there. Now, do we want to like at jeremyrossi.com? That's all I want. I'm not ready to deal with Jeremy at jeremyrossi.com or Brian at jeremyrossi.com. I just want to take care of the at Jeremy so that then the institutions can get to the point where email can be a value add again. It can be a tool that isn't just, hey, free for all. I think that you would see a lot of these chat apps die down. And I think there would be more innovation personally in that world where they don't have to deal with how do I get junk out of here? But that's a different area. I, I agree completely. So I think you're right in the sense that once you can trust that, at least the, that the senders of those domains are actually, then it then you're then you eliminate the reason a lot of these private communities start it other than the fact that maybe there's an experience that's different that people want but yeah it could work i think the incentives of getting the big three or, or whoever the incentives have to be there or else they're not going to yeah, take i think you've poked a couple holes in my incentives that i didn't want to admit to but i do legitimately question why microsoft with Exchange and O365 did not try to do what you just described themselves. What I don't get, and this is something where my own argument with this is that one of the largest email security provider that goes hairpins to themselves 50% of the time for financial, don't verify the hairpin. And they can make a guarantee that they are sending from their own customer to their own customer. They don't have to go out to the internet and into theirs. But they don't, they have a, cause I've gone through the entire RCPT headers and they don't. And all they have to do is sit there and say, oh, this is owned by us. Let's do a fast path and guarantee that it never had left our networks. I, and you want to know why it's probably because someone was lazy. Yes. We just talked a little bit a while ago about me being lazy. I guarantee you that's exactly why that way. <laughs> And they're a security company, so their incentive actually is malaligned. Because my entire proposal would really end a large amount of the business for security companies. Because you'd have attribution would be much, much different. And the sender would have an incentive to make it stop. So let's, so your idea ultimately, there's nothing saying that your idea could not be implemented outside the email on at all right so again bringing it back to question why hasn't microsoft tried to do this owning exchange o365 and 
what, probably 80% of the corporate email hosting in the world? If not more. I don't know. I don't know. I like, I honestly don't know. That's part of the reason why I like the idea because I think it would work. And then you could take even more market share. I have layer two ideas because I think that there's ways to make the content of email messages so that you can invert them to be like chats in your UI. Right. So that they look like bubbles going up and down and then you can do them in a long form, which will be threads. And I think there could be awesome innovation there. And I think that you should be able to look at your threads, like your outlook threads as team chat windows, because the amount of people that top post and just go like, it's a chat, like a chat interface for email. Well, you could do all that. You can make a wonderful it, interface on top of the system if people trust it. And you can make it so not, let, let's be clear, doing that would vastly make the internet and email communication much more. And you could even on top of that, again, web of trust in concept, you could then make even more security between two parties. Yes. The, the communication itself, even though it is distributed, you can absolutely open an encrypted channel. Not only that is, is because I know whatever I've decided in case of MX records of where to send to, I also, I obviously can trust that if they're coming from those IP address ranges or SMTP that has an appropriate uh, subject alternative name from those hosts, okay, and they can prove it, perfect, let's go. Because now I have a communication channel that's provable between two federated entities that we both know is allowed to say. Great, now I have a security communication channel between two providers to provide them. Now, more importantly, if I want to receive emails from John and not email Jeremy from the same domain, I can do that. I go into my block list and I block just one and I know it works. doesn't matter. It, so, it, it, there's so much an advantage. So let's talk right now a little bit about digitally signing emails, the experience today. Oh God. I, I'm going to bitch because I've seen it. I've tried it. I, uh, hold on. I, I tried it recently in the last two weeks on a Outlook client as a receiver and on Apple's mail, a client, both on my mobile device and my laptop, the experience of setting up the keys themselves is hard. S, S, I would assume it was S mine. Yeah. S mine. The experience inside of the email clients was actually really nice. And it got me thinking, what is that market right now? Who are the players that, that really sell root certificates for these identity? And really, it's the same people that kind of sell root certificates for it's DigiCert. Yep. It's these verified identity companies that do the same for TLS insurance, right? For whatever the different levels are. Again, yeah. though, it doesn't have to be. And if you have this almost like business foundation consortium and you could start to get people to join this for a reason, then you could actually do this with the existing technology. Yeah, You just need that. You just need that reason to get that. So I'll, I'll give the example is signal. You're familiar with the signal chat app. Everybody is, yep. they do a great job of being a, a signal, an authority between two identities and setting them up between each other. Now there's, it's not the same registered S mine, but same thing. 
Same concept as mine. It 100% would even be better on top of the system I talked about because the providers can sit there and make the guarantees of the communication channels between providers. But I don't know users want that yet. I think they talk about it. And I think that you could build that over time, but I don't know if that's quite ready there yet. I really wish it was. I tried to get SMI to be a thing with anybody. I've set it up with people before. They just, they, it just so doesn't resonate. Here's my problem with it. From a usability perspective inside of Microsoft's closed system, it is actually inside of Outlook. The experience of digitally signing your emails is actually quite nice. You get a verified email, it tells you that this person's verified. You, you no longer have to see who you could do it in a way from a user interface for people that are inside and outside your organization. That whole experience that Microsoft has with that could very well be even just more legitimate with this. But it, where it should be a default setting as part of setting up an exchange server it doesn't exist you have to do it separately and then you have to distribute the digital the user signing keys and everything separately it wasn't part of the onboarding experience as an exchange user in the it, where it should be so the amount of companies that i've helped at different points in time get these solutions set up for because i worked at a couple of hedge funds throughout my career and we had to do secure email, almost always was PGP before it was even worse. The biggest issue was not getting people signed up that needed access. He was making sure they weren't using it when they weren't supposed to be because they had a compliance requirement that they had to have a copy of every email. And so what would happen was in order to implement the system we did, we put a PGP SMTP server which had the keys and the authority and would side and do all that, but only between particular entities as it left the company's exchange server. You basically opened up, uh, decrypt it and then re No, we didn't decrypt. We didn't put the keys to the desktop. We only did it in the server so no. that if you were going from firm A to firm B, it would always be encrypted and guaranteed by the IT staff that approved that the, basically that the infrastructure had guaranteed that it went that way. And it was done at the infrastructure. A couple companies at some point in time wanted a cheaper way. And the cheaper way was to put it on the desktop. But literally the legal came in and says, you cannot use this except for X and Y between these particular customers as it's required by law to email some blah, blah, blah. And we will check on a regular basis because they had to show that they weren't, they were not, they weren't storing, they were storing all emails unencrypted for compliance reasons. But on, unencrypted only because there, there wasn't an easy mechanism to store the historical emails. Well, because when you, the SMIME is user controlled and then you, I know you're like, it, but that's the, that's been my history with it is because it was user. Oh, you're right. You're that, right. So I guess the point that I'm, I, I guess I just don't understand. I feel like that Microsoft that could have been their shtick for why you should use why you should use Exchange and everything in there because you can trust 
everyone in your network but it, it seems just to me it seems like a no-brainer that no one had ever really went for yeah there's the reason why i thought it, i would love to be able to sit there at with s mime and go great this company set it up and i know i only want i don't want to see somebody forwarding messages and bouncing around i want to see only emails that were from john that he forwarded to me that's wonderful once they have a strong identity and they can sit there and say okay must be authenticated blah 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 provable i have his key bam i just don't think anybody ever innovated and thought that way and in the security world maybe this is a completely different separate conversation is that there's so little white space allowed with giving users choice in the security world where there's it's got to be uh end to end by default or it's not secure or it's a bad choice you see this with uh, some of the chat apps where the security and, uh, and privacy people are like, no, it's a bad choice. You shouldn't use Telegram because it's not secure by default. And because people go with defaults. Isn't that just a marketing term? No, because it's... It, I mean, no. I know it means but something. That's the thing. But... It's like you get the opposite of that. Signal won't do anything that isn't privacy saving. They are literally nightmares for compliance reasons. And so like you get this weird perverse incentive structure in these worlds where they don't want to be able to decrypt the message. That's what they're selling you. That's the, uh, what they're offering. It, it's weird. As soon as we hit encryption or trying to hide content, it gets really weird. It does. It does, especially when as two people that work in corporate world, we and we manage IT for large companies, we now need to have ways to basically ensure that these records are, the ability of these records can, they can be accessed when necessary. And th I think it's the hard part now is that for a lot of us, the work device and the personal device are the same device. And there isn't really a way that Apple or Android have figured out how to keep those things modes separate. And to make it more complicated, our legal organizations in the United States, the SEC, really are not happy with that combining because it makes the definition very troubling. I don't remember who got sued. Lots of big banks lost a lot of money to the SEC because they were not properly policing WhatsApp and Signal. And because they didn't have it, and it could say they were proved eventually by acquisition of phones, via investigations, that they were doing active trading of some type or material non-public. It's tough. It's really tough. I don't think, to come back to, all the way back to your S-MIME, I don't think S-MIME is in encryption, uh, is going to ever take off because the major organizations don't know how to respond to that in a good way without them having some really hard question. I think, unfortunately, I th and I think it is unfortunate that it's a little more, there's no reason, there's no incentive for those major organizations, for the Apples of the world, for Google, for Microsoft, Facebook. There's no reason for any of them to want that, right? Because you're then pushing people's monthly active views, whatever to those other tools, right? They want you in their tool, which is unfortunate, but getting back, talking real quick about the corporate identity and the environment, I think the value of everything you're talking about is valid and some closed environments 
productivity tools, uh, communities, the that value is realized in these Discord communities, the uh, Slack communities that have these integrations now and even tools, uh, financial service provider platforms. <laughs> There's a reason these things are important and people use them. And I think we've just moved on from email being, I think it's people think lost cause. Yeah, I do. And I don't want to go quietly into the night. I don't want to let email go away. And that's what it comes down to is I, maybe I'm nostalgic. Maybe I'm pining for another time, but I can't get past how unbelievably productive email is as a communication tool because of it's the expectation, right? That everyone has now with an email address with both as a sender and a receiver in, in that platform versus a instant messenger with the little bubbles versus taking a letter and writing it and putting it in the mailbox. The expectation of a response is much different in those three different things. And email is right. It, it's like for a work productive person that works in an office, it's like perfect. And it's what I want in more spaces. And it's what I find to be a benefit. It's also you want that mechanism that everyone knows how to communicate in that manner with the expectation that you'll eventually get back to them. Yeah. And it doesn't exist right now. I also don't think people are like that anymore. So there's also that. And I got to be realistic yeah. of that. But I, but I do think the media matters. And I do think that people behave differently when they have a system that they believe works and it encourages and makes the presentation for long form com communication work. And that's why I think one of the things I think would be great if people use email, I'd love to try different ways of interfacing with email to make it move between chat, between long form. And, and the truth is, when is the last time you wrote an email that wasn't in the corporate long form? that we we're all used to in our careers. When was the time I haven't done that? When's the last time? Yeah. When's the last time you used emojis or, oh, yeah. or like that? No. Yeah. I, in an email every now and then, just because there's little banter that sometimes gone over the email, but that's, that could be inverted as the chat interface on top of an email. That's why I like the parent. Yeah. I agree. I, I get the point. The point I was trying to get at is that we have different styles of communication between the different mechanisms as well, right? right? Like I communicate entirely differently o over email versus the way that I communicate inside of a text message. You're on the same chat thread where I'm often reporting knowing where that should have been an email. God damn it, Jeremy. Four paragraphs and a fucking text message with 30 piece, 10 people. <laughs> What the fuck? And yes, I know nobody would have read the email either. They didn't read the text message either. This is awesome. I read every text message eventually <laughs> that comes to my phone, with the exception of anything that looks like a short code and <laughs> jump. I'm not giving up on this idea. I think you gave me a lot to think about. I, it's one of those things where I might even write, I might get angry enough one night to write an RFC. See, like the heart, the, I'm laughing because I feel like the answer to the way we should do this is to follow the previous RFCs and actually try to build the web of trust instead of writing a new RFC. But that's me. 
I, I think you're right, but I'm just building a web of trust between providers and give them the mechanism to exchange keys to send on behalf. But okay. But isn't that, and again, maybe my thought pattern's wrong here, but isn't that a separate, simply a separate web of trust? Yes. Then the person who the other web of trust is that from the identity. Correct. It is 100%. That's the key thing. But yes. Yeah. So I, the, the point I'm making though is why couldn't, isn't that how the existing PKI would work if you set it up? I think so. I just don't know how to bridge that gap in one jump. The, you're, you're, you just need, we need to solve the key exchange. Oh, yes. And the provability of that. Me- we're going to end this conversation because we're going to hit into blockchain real soon. I know. I was trying to, I was trying to get to the blockchain part and I wanted to, I wanted to say, I think we can raise some money for that <laughs> and then cut to an ad with an ICO. <laughs> to, uh, that doesn't work anymore as much. <laughs> the SEC is actually suing people now that did that. So I think I'm going to come back to this probably, and it'll probably be a future update at some point in time. But yeah, thanks, John. It's fun no. to explore the ideas with somebody and hopefully the listeners enjoy that too. Off to the next topic. Yeah. What do we have? We had hobbies. Oh yeah. This one's, this is going to be a fun one to close. with. I think that was, I think that one. Well. I think so too. I think it was. Yeah. Water. I also think we're doing better. Not. Like going too far off tangents. Yes. And, but yet they were still within bounds, but we kept on pulling it back and nobody yeah, will listen yeah. to that and go, oh, I, there was, they didn't have a plan. No, they didn't have a plan, but they got to something. But we, yeah. And I think the good thing is because simply because we talked about it, we both kept pulling back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's not go that yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it was good. But it's, there's something there. Yeah. I like those. I like those real problems that we're actually thinking about. And I think we should do the web of trust, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. That one. I need to do a little more research and reading. No, I'll actually be come, prepared I'll, to have I'll, that I'll, conversation. I'll go do a couple of hours for reading before that one too. Yeah, exactly. And then barring. Oh, yes. Oh, all right. Hobbies. So how do we want to start this hobby section, John? I don't have any hobbies for real. I have a bunch of half-hearted hobbies and you talk to me weekly now yeah. on a podcast. That's in that a hobby. I'll be honest. That might be the most involved I've been in a hobby in years, in absolute years. And I'm really enjoying it because it, it's something fundamentally different. It requires me to think and, and plan in a slightly different way. And I look forward to it. It's fun. I think one of the things that we continue to talk about as, as we do every week, it, it comes down to what are the things that are, that interest us and then diving as deep as we can in it, be it in our career. In some cases we talked about rock climbing and I think that in and of itself is a hobby, right? Exercising is good, but once you do something like rock climbing, it's like a hobby. Sim racing is like a hobby the way we do yes. it. It's <laughs> like a hobby. I think what you're, what you're talking about is something that it, that you can do that both scratches in the itch of curiosity, but also you learn or you, you do something that you can appreciate that is not really related to probably what you do 80% of the time, the technology world. And that's been my job has been my hobby 
So for so many years, I've never grew other hobbies outside of technology. And even when I was doing technology, that was still the hobby at home. I'm now at the point where that's not enough. I need to diversify some. And it's not that I don't care about the technology and learning new things as much. It's that it doesn't bring me the relaxation that it used to. It's, do you think it's because when you, now when you start doing, you're investigating these things, you start experimenting. Sometimes you write code. Sometimes it's just reading a paper. Do you think that you don't think of that as a hobby because it is, those stints are short or are almost by definition short term versus like something, let's just say, I don't know if you were going to build race cars, electronic RC cars. I'm going to, I'm going to, I think it's as much, I haven't read a thing that I would consider novel in technology in years. Novel new, new in technology. Yeah, in technology. Like that that truly two-phase commit. When I first read the paper about two-phase commit, it sent me for loops. I saw those problems everywhere in new ways. It literally was, and it wasn't the paper. It was great, but it just. You have that moment that it changes. So that's I, what yeah, I mean so by the me, novel aspect. Is I don't walk yeah. away from reading a paper going, oh, what about applying here? I, I've seen, oh, I'm seeing it here. I'm seeing it here. I'm saying, okay, it's a retread of the existing Paxos algorithm on XYZ. The raft or Paxos paper is, it was that, yes. right? Raft was, uh, Praxos, but I read it years before Raft. And Raft was amazing because right. of what it achieved. But it didn't, but that's the thing is, Raft was inefficient. It was beautiful. It was elegant. But it didn't go, I didn't go looking around saying, oh, there's another distributed systems problem. It was Paxos, but more efficient. Refined, yeah. I would correct. say. A, a, Different a, deficient efficiency games, but it was, it was beautiful. Correct. But the point that I'm making is that you don't see your thirst or your want for the knowledge, for expanding your knowledge in this space, in this career that you've chosen as a hobby. You're talking something entirely separate that lives longer than a couple of days of yes. interest. Yeah, because that that well, that's what turned it into a hobby for me was the reapplying what I just learned and looking back through my old history. If you read old code and you're like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Yeah. But that's how I'd go, oh, I would have done this differently now that I knew this and this. And that was a hobby thing. That was the part where I'd go for walks and I'd redesign architectures that I were literally shut down 10 years ago. I'm like, oh no, we should have done this and this and this. And that was the hobby aspect of the technology was constantly rethinking the problems I was paid to solve or asked to solve, but applying the new ones on and made me, I think, pretty good at what I do. But now it's at the point where I'm in, it's maturing of the organization. It's the maturing of technology at the same time. And me is that there's not as much as that. I will say the Bitcoin was paper was probably the single biggest one the last real novel hit I had in technology where I sat there and go like, how many places can we apply this? And I just went through problem after problem. It didn't fit all of them, but my God, did I try? It just, it latched into my brain. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. And I agree for granted. I haven't, I'm going to take not really a nerd part, but I haven't read the 
any of the papers behind the LLM and GPT. I just haven't, I haven't spent the time to do that. I haven't even spent the, the time to read too much into the kind of specifics of machine learning circa six years ago. Right. But for me, the last paper, it really had to have been like, I just remember Google's chubby lock oh, system. Yes. At that point for turned into zookeeper, which turned into etcd and console, they all kind of lineage of several different ways to refine that system. But Google's chubby lock system I, I was right at the time that I was writing distributed system software, config management, <laughs> but orchestration software, that system clicked. Yeah. And, and, and that was the hobby for me was finding more of those yeah. and then relitigating my entire technology history class for as long as I possibly can. But ultimately turning that drive turned into in your career and, and that hobby turned into moving the needle for an organization ever so slightly, yeah. but an organization enough that it, it drives the technology change, which I still do, but it doesn't have, it's still, like, it's not the same for you right. now. It's the, not that I, I get, they, there's it's still awesome to be paid to apply all this stuff. I still greatly enjoy it. I love even more now than before as I enjoy teaching it. But there wasn't that moment. So let me just ask. So for me, I did have a moment like that when I first used an LLM, like GPT-3 LLM. And, and I started to do basic, in my head, what we all do as computer scientists, Turing test type things. I did have that moment where I was like, wow, fuck. But as soon as I started doing the deep dives and the research into really what's happening, I'm like, oh, okay. But it, it's still a place, a moment in, I think, computer science in our career that's going to be hard to top. I want to talk about that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I, I'm going to love being in that next moment that tops LLMs. I'm going to. Cause we're talking AGI probably. No, don't disagree. You don't yeah. think so? What's the next, what's the next inflection moment? Like what could be. I so LLMs like we're really going off a tangent. So let's say, no, I, that's what we do. That's the whole point about the hobby section in a lot of ways. LLMs are compression. For lack of better terminology, they're compression, but they connect to us like we're talking to a human. It feels human. We're anamorphic, anamorphic, whatever, but giving it human feelings when it doesn't have any, it is just regurgitating things. Yeah. And that's fine. We that I know that, but it doesn't feel that way. And it feels like more. And it does for most of the people that are interacting with it. The, the use cases I've seen for it and its experience with it are around connecting humans to computers in a better way, but I don't see the major leaps. I'm not seeing, the, I, I am in deep learning, but not in LLMs. I'm seeing unbelievable AlphaGo in AlphaFold. Holy, but Jesus, were they solving some really hard interest, but we're not talking that the LLM is that next level up. We're seeing as a continuous of projection. 
I haven't seen anything that's, I don't think we're on the cusp of the AGIs. I, 40 years short. So hold, hold on. Yeah. Let me put something on the record. I don't think we're on the cusp of being near AGIs oh. either. What I'm referring to is we are at the beginning, I think personally, of the point when an LLM as an input device could change how we use computers. I, I'm going to be more, the best way I can put it for this is I think LLMs are going to allow people to use computers like me and you do. Yes. And I don't, and, but I think that alone, that, that point of inflection, that change is going to be a, think about if you now took the percentage of people that are technologists like us that can use computers to, to be productive and in the economy, taking that now applying it to everyone else. And then hooking that up to the fucking internet. Like, it's like making capitalism, like juice it. I, I, I agree. I just think it's not going to be as fast. I don't think it's going, the technology is going to be ramp up, but I still think that what we're going to, it's still going to take time for humans to use it. You got to apply it and get it going. I, I, I don't think you're going to see the value proposition anytime. You're going to start seeing it in areas, but it's going to take years and years to take it to continue on that S curve of LLMs. LLMs as a net positive or negative to GDP over five years. Oh, it would be a positive, but I'm going to say it's a percent. Was it, but but it, but let me, let me it will be under 1%. So the point I'm getting at is that 1% like not services organizations billing sandcastles for no reason, but is that 1% because people are now more productive? I'm actually, maybe. I see. That's what I'm interested I in think because, it, because I yeah. think it's because people are going to be more productive, but I don't know if it's, I think it's, I don't know. Folks, the interesting thing now is that Jeremy, we spent a whole time this episode talking about the redundancy of someone's home and how he has, he spent a lot of time with building a generator and how Starlink rather is an option for internet. So he's redundant. So if the power goes out, he still has internet access. And forgot to plug his laptop in and then the battery just died.
the same picture that you get on your phone when it's not charged and it's connected. Not, not enough power yet to turn on. Is the same on a laptop. It's the first time I've actually ever seen that. We see a nice Vista picture-esque landscape from Apple and a progress bar. I do think the interesting thing that we're at the beginning potentially of when people use their, Hey, <laughs> I was just, I, I, there's a pretty good, there's a pretty good stint in there where I, I talked about how your redundancy play doesn't really work well if you don't plug it in your laptop in. <laughs> um, I get a new dock for my laptop sits next to me and the cable that goes from the new dock into the power port down there was just dangling USB, USB C cable. Just RC. Yeah. You want to get what grinds my gears? USB C fucking hate that thing. How many different types of USB C cables do you know of? Three, seven, seven, seven. So I'm going to USB power delivery, PD, USB, the, you said USB three. So the USB three cable that actually is the old plugs. Yes. Um, and then the obvious USB C that everyone uses in the, well, I, even though that's probably not USB C, it's a Thunderbolt there's a protocol. Four, there's a but, version four. That's the Thunderbolt protocol is the version four, but there's three okay. speeds of it. Okay. Okay. It's $99 to buy a uh, 40 gigabit, 1.8 meter long USB-C cable. And is that, well, hold on a second. Is that because of licensing? My, you can buy oh. them cheaper, but that's the Apple one and the, and it's half the price on monoprice. It's $48 on monoprice. But still that cable, like why does that cable cost so much? Because it's. I don't know. I can guess, but I, we should invite somebody that helped design some things to it, to literally break that down. Cause he would literally show up and go on a tirade about USB-C for at least seven hours. So Apple is the, the new iPhones releasing next week on September 12th. And because of the European union, they are going to switch the iPhone gasp to USB-C. If but what speed will be the port for the non-pro version? That's a great question because there still might be different high speed and low speed in USB ports. But do you think that Apple does that? 
Yeah, I don't think. So for years, they've had this hard on for Firewire and fucking Thunderbolt and like proprietary connectors over proprietary message or physical bus. Why? Uh, works with iPhone is an unbelievably, yeah, I, unbelievable, I, I, profitably, makes... profitable aspect. But I will say that I wish Lightning, I, I hate USB-C. I, I really do. The connector? hate it because of... You hate the USB-C connector? Yes. The, I'm sorry. Why? I hate the USB-C connector because this connector doesn't tell you by what you plug in what you're actually going to get. Because... Oh, you because because you don't know what the fuck. Yeah, right. I so look, I am staring at a desk that has Apple USB C cables because they're the only ones I could get to carry a 4K signal between yes. my little docking hub, my Mac, but, and my monitor. But but, be- but let's but hold on. Let's be clear. You also must hate HDMI and DisplayPort. No, I love DisplayPort. DisplayPort is a beautiful, wonderful protocol. God, we should do more of that. Holy shit, DisplayPort got so much right. HDMI. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of HDMI, but at least. But okay. dis- I understand why you hate USB-C, and it's probably the same reason why you hate USB 2. Yes, but USB 2, at least they got the blue bit in there when you knew it was fast. That was- How many different cable connectors do you know of for USB 2? <laughs> you know what? Let me go get a drink because we're going to be here for a while. I have a drink. If we're going on USB cables, yes. And that would be a hobby. But I actually, <laughs> I would love to bring a USB expert onto this podcast because I would find it fascinating. And I know the people that could do that. And yeah, you know exactly who we would love to have mm-hmm. that could do that. But uh, I will talk to them. So hobbies. Should we go back to that or we off the Yeah, let's go back to Hobbit. Then we can edit some of the stuff out and you can make sure you can leave yeah. the Jerry Fucker you're out of finding out. <laughs> I'm going to make a confession. I started listening to 40K, Warhammer 40K lore for an unbelievable. I started reading how to play the game. I don't know if I'm so, there yet. It is an unbelievably it, it, complicated so game. Let me just give a little narration here. I am worried that Warhammer 40k for you is what sim racing is for me. <laughs> Where you just go on a like 60 to 90 day like rage like deep dive understanding eh, we don't see you for No, that would be a distinct possibility. The fact that I probably know now enough about 40k lore to fill at least two to three books easily. Tyranids, I tell you way too many of the space marine factions. And I, it, it goes way too deep. The primarchs, so, there's two hidden so primarchs I, you don't so, know about. Uh, like, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there because, like, I respect because I don't think I really know anything that deep, but uh, may, maybe like. Tolkien. three 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 books uh, so, so that was my next question is how did you absorb this knowledge so let me i know of at least 190 40k lore books just lore it's just infinite but that's a different story i started it because there's a 
40K YouTube channel called Luden. And he has the most calm, boring voice in the all of existence. And he does 40K lower videos. They are often an hour and 45 minutes in length. And they are about a topic in the lore. And then he goes on and he talks ex as excited as he is, but it's relatively whether he even. And so that I, I became one of the members of the sleeping crew. So he has a, he posts a poll once a year asking who actually listens and who sleeps. And 25% of everybody that listens to his listening is are, are subscribed members because they sleep they go to sleep for it to him. You cannot listen to a topic to go to sleep for over three years and not pick up a huge amount of plot knowledge. Wait a second. You've been listening to this. At least three. You've been listening to this topic for three years. At least. At night, before you go to sleep. Every single night. I often fall asleep to it. So, like, sometimes it'll be 15 minutes. Sometimes it will be an hour and 25 minutes. <laughs> Wait, thank you. Yeah, this, this got a lot more interesting. <laughs> So I, when we first started, when, when I saw this on our Trello board for planning, I was like, why are we talking about this topic? It, it's just, I don't know anything about Warhammer a little bit, but this got a lot more interesting. <laughs> so for three years, every single night, you have fallen asleep anywhere from 15 minutes to let's say 45 minutes. Sometimes four hours. Sometimes four hours, but rarely, hopefully, listening to someone's YouTube channel I, about Warhammer 40K. Um, I had to find more YouTube channels behind it besides him. Wait, wait a second. So it's a, so it's a YouTube playlist. No, no. About Warhammer 40K. His, no, it's around five to six different channels now expanded to podcasts so it is a media collection of warhammer 40k fan i don't know narrators uh, luton 40k i've listened to i've listened to every single video he has total playtime looks like he's got a 1.8k of videos most of those are shorts, but yeah, I've played every single video he has multiple times. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> recent, lore, recent lore, 142 videos, average play length is 45 minutes. I just, I, okay. When I go to sleep, I usually just lay down on the pillow. <laughs> I think I need a drink. Close my eyes. <laughs> it seems you absorb a, a lot more information than I thought you did. I didn't, didn't. because when you're tired, you now know you've absorbed over three years enough information about Warhammer 40k. I, <laughs> yeah. I, how do you retain that? So when you've listened to the same. Like I said, I often fall asleep, so I have to restart them. And but at some point in time, like you just retain a lot of information that you're being presented to by four to well six different content creators that create the same content on the same topic in different ways. 
So I'll give you an idea. The emperor of man in 40K is just bonkers in every way, shape, or form. And, and it, it, by the way, let me give you why I, I 40K. It is insanity. There is nothing about 40K that is anything close beyond the most complicated insanity ever. It is the grim dark is the terminology that I use. And it is just the worst of the worst. Everybody is evil. Everybody. Everybody in every way, shape, and form. And then there's the emperor of man who's, uh, I don't know, an immortal with an unbelievably long lifespan who steered humanity for 20,000 years. And that was at least eight hours of videos on just his life. I'm going to take your word for that, but he has 22 sons <laughs> and I know this. Would you like to know where they were? He was separated from them and spread, you... spread across the galaxy. I can tell you. So can I ask? Oh. And now I really could talk for a long time about just this topic, but the Warhammer universe. Yes. I don't know enough. I know a little bit more than probably most people because I'm familiar with the comic book world. The Warhammer universe is not like the White Wolf. It's it's a single entity putting out the yes. lore, right? God, I can't remember the name of the organization that does it, but yes. They own all the copyrights. They pay a bunch of authors and they sell the game, the lore, and, and another part of the hobby, which I'm really never going to get into, is the painting of the figures. When we just, when we first started talking about this as a topic on, for this segment, I thought this is where the conversation was going to go through you painting little clay or pewter figurines in the dark drinking scotch, because I get it, man. Like it's been a hard day. You want to drink some scotch and paint a little pewter doll. I'm not going to shirt. Cool. Why is that interesting? Why do people want to talk about it? But no, it went a completely different direction. <laughs> learn something new. I learned something. Yeah, I, I learned something about the human mind, too. <laughs> yes, the only person I think besides you and now everybody else knows is Michael, our friend Michael. Uh, he, I'm, so, by the way, when this gets out to our little chat group, it's going to go. They're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. So let me ask a, a, a few more questions because. I just have to know three years. Yes. What was before Warhammer? Because this isn't the first thing you decided to listen to. Come on. <laughs> we all know yeah. that. Warhammer's just big and expensive. Right. I did podcasts for a long time, but it was okay. almost always podcasts that were on the boundary of interesting and not really interesting. Fair amount of cooking. One of my favorite was the gardening podcasts. Okay. Old ladies talking about gardening. Oh my God, it's so easy to fall asleep, especially because you're like, it's okay. They they, they're really, they love it. They're passionate about it, but it's not an interest but, enough to keep but, you up. But I guess the, why I asked that is, is you absorbed in each of those cases, a lot of information about th the topic matter. Well, I don't know if I'm not, let's take somebody that's really people, there's 40 K fans that are really into this. Of course. Sure. And I know nothing compared to them. They, they read books per week kind of things. But I've been presented the entire story so many times by different people. You can't not. And then the other thing is at some point in time, uh, I have to stop. I can't use it to fall asleep as much because I now find it interesting. 
So I have to, the, the tool I used to do to go to sleep is now actually interesting and I have to stop it after 30 minutes and find something else. So I'll, I have something like okay. that. And for me, it is audible. Specifically audible fiction, mostly science fiction, but really anything narrated is fiction. And there are times that when I go through and I'm in a particular voracious reading, listening part where I'll go through, I don't know, six or seven books a month and they're each 10 and 12 hours. I could, when traveling to Vermont, I could do, I do that easily. I'll sit outside on the porch and listen to them at night and I will go to sleep with them. But that's what and I can't do with books. Why? I want to retain the information and I can't guarantee it. So I've might everything about retaining information has changed from volume and speed to contemplation over the last five years. And I go intentionally slower. In fact, to the point where I will often, my preferred reading style now is to read the Kindle with the audio at the same time so that it highlights the word so that I'm reading, hearing at the same time. My retention on those has skyrocketed. And then I use tools to do recall, which we talked about before, Readwise, so that every single highlight that I highlight gets were put in front of me randomly uh, in the future again, because I want to retain it and my retention has gone to the roof, but that's a different, because I do these things for different purposes. So your productivity workflow or just your personal, the way that you manage just your day-to-day -day and kind of information for yourself is, is interesting because it's not what I do. I'm very much, and we've talked about this in the past with multitasking. Yep. I'm able to absorb things at the same time. And I'm not going to say it's a hundred percent. There's no way it's going to be a hundred percent accurate between the two mm -hmm. as if I were a hundred percent focused on one thing versus a hundred percent another thing, but I'm able to do it two or even sometimes three things at once and, and juggle that to be hyper productive in the, it's usually between the eight thirty and twelve thirty hours. So like coffee, yep. everything that's me. The afternoon, I can I, I get down. I do two at a time, but by the evening, I I'm burnt. It's one thing I can't do multitasking. So I am one thing all day long, and it generally never stops unless I'm trying to pause and consume and re apply something repeatedly. So I get my wife is you haven't gotten up and done anything for three hours because like on a Saturday morning I'll sit down with my coffee and it just gets refilled by my wife but I've gone through 45 articles but I'm usually highlighting pausing putting them in different things categorizing them writing notes about them and then using the, that to recall and there almost always be a train of thought and then by nightfall I will then go back and review that what I read the parts that I thought were important and then recall them and bring them back because that's what makes it real for me. That's when the knowledge becomes useful is when I'm got a 
I, I'm going to put it how I think of it, which is less accurate than it is, but I put a bunch of data in a way that works for me. And then I start pattern matching against it, against a bunch of different complicated mm. ideas. And I don't understand what's going on, but you're just doing pattern matching over and over again. But by the end of the day, I've made sense and started putting it into my brain in a way that I think is useful. And that almost always means, number one, it's not news. It's usually long form content that is meaningful there. And just keep on going and try to figure out how these things can be actioned in my brain to change my life, use my life, or become different in some way, shape, or form. That usually means some of the topics I care about, which are politics, productivity, people, power, all those kind of things. I'm much more like a, I get, I'll have two or three things running concurrently and I'll stay focused on those things. And then those two or three things will start to fall off as I hand it to other people mm -hmm. because that's the nature of my role. Yep. But in my personal life, I think because the nature of how my role is often handing those things off, I end up being hyper, trying to be hyper-focused on one thing to get it done, like you just said. At work? But it takes longer. At work, I think I'm more like you. That's why I go back to the email. I love email because I don't have to be like this, but I don't know. Like people, once we got Slack at my last role, it, I'm an addict. It's like control K, drop it. And I just, you can drop it and you give your insight and highlights, get the people going. You're going off the right. You're going left. You need to be going right. Here's how the da da, da 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 Hit me up later if you need it. Or people are spinning out of control. No, stop. Calm down. Not important. Let's not do it. Anything now. Just literally being everywhere at once and keeping up with everything was one of the most amazing things I could do. Like people would come up and be like, how the fuck do you follow all this? I can do that. But the key thing is I don't retain it. I can use what I already know and to apply to those situations. But that's be but if you were to ask me to go into, okay, this Slack channel is something truly new and I had to understand it before I could figure and do anything with it, I would have to stop being that, going through that fast motion, concentrate and figure out what the hell I need to learn. That's what I need yeah. to do. That's what yeah. I do. But most of the time yeah, I, I mean, don't, yeah. most of the time it's literally go to the room. Oh yeah. No, this is easy. X, Y, Z. Let's move. And you know that. I know you do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are times though, when I do need to stop and say, wait a second, something's wrong mm -hmm. here. Let's now understand everything about this topic, yes. including the history of how that software was built and who owned it entirely a deep dive and then walk it back to how does it apply to this problem now? And for me, that's the interesting thing, part of my job and my, the roles I've been in. But yeah, there are times where you need to go ex extremely deep, but it sounds like I can't, I, I don't think I would be able to absorb the kind of information you absorb no. passively. Uh, oh, the passive, but what you just talked about in that Slack channel where you went deep and mm. went deep and understood it is what I'm doing when I'm reading, doing the exact same thing. I'm giving it. I'm picky, I I'm see. I, but it's instead of it being something I have to solve out there in somebody else's, I have selected this thing as something I want to solve at that deep dive I level. See. And so, so that could be very simply could be, I went on a, a, a philosophy kick. All right. I'm going to understand as much as I possibly can about stoicism and not just understand it, 
but I, I viscerally I I understand, understand it, feel it, disagreements yeah. with it, who argues with it, why it's blah, blah, blah. And so, that's where I get that from. So to tie it back around to an earlier segment, how is that not your hobby? It is. It really is. But it's not. So what are you, so what are you looking for in a hobby? I need a hobby that you can sit on the couch and have coffee magically handed to you by your amazing wife for three hours on a weekend is not the thing you should be doing for eight hours on the weekend. You need to get some physical stimulation. You need to try to change it up and it needs to let it be more, a little more broad. I need to have, I believe, I need to find something that I can do in a different way. And I think that consumption and doing that reading and, and picking the topics is not as active, even though I try to make it active in how I do it. It's not actively using those things. Uh, playing 40K Warhammer would be actively using knowledge. Um, going to learn how to sail would be actively using knowledge. And I think it's important to act with these things. I, I understand now what you're saying. I think, I think, and especially about the consumption of media, tools, services, whatever you want to call it, especially I have little kids. It is difficult to not, to not, to vault, to just stay out of that. I haven't been able to, it's your kids are crazy at this, at these ages. And now you fall into the, the habit of being on the couch and not having a active hobby. Right. And I'm very um, glad. I'll, I'll be very proud. It's not TV. Oh, everything okay? Yeah, I'm getting a little feedback. I heard a garage door. Oh, that's on your side. Oh, it is. It's 11 o'clock. Home automation clicked in. <laughs> 11 o'clock, everything clo closes down. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a hobby right there. But yeah, no, I think that a lot of like, how would I put this? The best way to think about it is I'm worried reading in that deep dive that I'm doing is turning into TV that you see very for common people is the thing that I can do by default. And I don't want that to be the only thing I do. So I need it. Grow. That's fair. And, and I agree because being at the age with my children and having to watch them make sure they don't kill themselves but also on saturday morning i do get into that i'm gonna sit on youtube and go scroll through twitter not when i'm in that state i don't absorb anything no. other than trash there's nothing really and, and again i'm trying to watch a kid but also but i agree with what you're saying the just absorbing knowledge in that fashion for a lot of people we're, we're going to be in a bad place we already yeah. are but i mean well you're, you see this kind of repeat pattern with me is i want more we talk about this in politics we talked about this in email i want more contemplation in general across life and across everybody i want people to be less discourse yeah, i want it to be slower I think it's important to slow things down a little bit. I know that's the opposite of what the world is pushing towards, but I, I do find it the, to be better. So 
of two hours. Uh, no, we're, we're trying to keep this shorter. Remember? <laughs> I know the Warhammer. The world, yeah, the world is the the world pushing towards the taking longer and doing things faster. I believe I, I I think you're right. So I think we're losing a lot because we want to do things faster, and it's more about responding faster, not necessarily completing a task faster. Firstly, and that's a distinction. Oh my god, productivity, all of productivity. So, so I'm honing in. I'm honing in on productivity. If we can, you can. If you focus on in a business world situation, you focus more on getting productivity and efficiency rather than just the speed at which you respond to queries, you will build a beast of, of an operational business, organization, software, product, whatever. Yes. Every time. Every time, and you will, it will be predictable. It, I, I literally want to go to companies and go slow the fuck down. Focus. Build that. In the... Go read the Toyota yeah, go book and be passionate about manufacturing and, and know yeah. what the fuck you want to build. Don't go like, oh, I want to build, I want to go build something great and make it to sell it to customers. Nobody cares. Everybody wants to go build something for customers. What do you want? Go build that and then take your time and be relentless. I've done a lot of reading in this space and it's all the same. Go slow, be deliberate and know and be passionate. It's going to be very hard to build that type of culture and environment in an organization today versus five years ago with it not being as cheap to, to get money. Yeah. I, I think, but I also think, I think it's also a cultural problem beyond that. I think it's a, I'm going to use communication tools. People are chat, they constantly chat. They're expected to be available constantly in chat. So if you're spending, if you're going to prepare for the next response, that's not focus time. That's not thinking about way going forward. That's not using your time productively. I, the same thing goes for text messages. It's always about, hey, how do I get to the next one? Oh, I got to respond quick. Oh, well. I don't think that's useful. I think deliberate is better. But I also think our society doesn't value that right now. And I think it will change but I, I like i'm a little incoherent at this point around some of these topics i think it's pretty late but i want to give them the justice they deserve i i no i actually i don't think you're incoherent i i hear you i think the point that that society needs to understand and at some point they will is that being deliberate and focusing on the efficiencies and just the the predictability will get you actually to the faster end results yeah. well yeah. even rather than just responding and creating a bunch of fucking noise charlie munger says it all the time let everybody else go fast i'm gonna go make the right decision yep berkshire hathaway you know sometimes people are gonna be right and blow through the roof and be beat charlie but more often than not they're not <laughs> but i do think that would be a fun topic is productivity because i think we've gotten it wrong i think that the being hyper-focused on output and response times and metrics. And I want to talk about the McKinsey paper at some point in time. Oh God, do I want to talk about how I want to hate that McKinsey paper so goddamn much. I don't think I know what paper you're talking about. Oh, then 
I think this should be a future. I need to pre do some pre. Yeah, I think this should be. We'll you'll hate it as much as I do. It, McKinsey is offering a new product and a new thing. Is they say that they can now measure and metric development in engineering teams. That's the reason I'm not a fan of. Uh, yeah, I can. That's is. You know what? I can do that too. Yeah, I can. And I have a nice last name as well. <laughs> Like I said, I, I think the paper's decidedly wrong. I think it's ham-fisted. I think it's going to create an unbelievable problem, much like Scrum did. But we're going to have to deal with it because it's going to get weight. And it's going to be CEOs are going to start asking for it because McKinsey has made a big enough show and people are going to buy it. You think so? Oh, yes. I just, I haven't. Oh, yes. McKinsey, like, everywhere I've worked in the last 15 years thinks that those McKinsey, like these thought leaders are bozos. Yes. But they aren't talking to you. McKinsey, it can, McKinsey is a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, they're but, advising every but Why does it matter? People listen to them. If they're not talking to me and they're not talking, I'm assuming to you, then I guess it's, I understand the scrum analogy because I did have to live through that. I just wonder, I wonder if maybe we're jaded now and we're protecting ourselves from that junk in our, it could be. our sphere of influence. That could be true. But I do think McKinsey's ability to create a narrative around inside of the executive forums, inside of that executive world, and that they are going to, and they are, they couch, you, you should read it because they couch it in a very specific way. They go, it's time to do what everybody has told you is not possible and we can help you by measuring your CTO and your engineering teams. And we can show you via this that we are able to do it and it's going to be able to hold like your sales team accountable. You can hold your engineering team accountable. That is literally like giving raw meat to a lion because they didn't understand. They had this big budget that was called C Tech run by the CTO and it was complicated could never do but, metrics wait wait no but whether they did do metrics whether they believe them now but mckinsey's there saying like i need that but so i work at a technology company you work at a technology company legitimately mm -hmm. like we we build software and we both work to other companies build software Do we really think that's going to work? I don't think it's going to work. I just think it's going to eat up an ungodly amount of resources and time. And I say it's going to work. I just think you're going to have to deal with because, it. Because here's the thing, like at some point someone's going to say, all right, you know what? What are you going to fire the CTO and just start? How are you going to get these results? So McKinsey, yeah, sure. They could start to what they're going to sell. What like? What's a new way to develop software? No, they'll bring in their consultants. They'll help you metric it and make sure your engineering team is running efficiently. Oh it's horrible because the people I've ever worked with at these firms are, they don't know what they're doing. That's So I, I, I'm worried that, yeah, maybe if it is going in this direction that, uh, that the rest of the world is dealing with a, like Bozo the Clown <laughs> coming in, like fixing their IT environment. Well, let's take an organization that's boring an insurance company, make up an insurance company. And they, they have facts and figures and metrics up and down that they understand and they're relatively boring. And 
when it comes to their software development, they miss their numbers all the time. They get, they don't have a, wait, wait, mm -hmm. because they were agile and they whatnot. And so whatever the CTO did a great job, he delivered value time and time again, but it wasn't predictable. He didn't have a job. Well, hold on. But what is, so that's the, right. There is the problem. Of course it is. Right. What is that insurance company using? What is the metric they're measuring the CTO? By? You're remembering that they don't because they, that's the problem. The sales yeah, team okay. was measured and, because of X, Y, Z. That's because, that's because the leadership teams didn't actually sit down and have the conversation like, like actual adults should in these types of situations and talk about expectations and what you're accountable for and what you're not accountable for. Well, let me put it another way. How many times would I, let me, I think I can say this accurately. How many times do you think a CTO is going, has tried to communicate and failed and fallen back on engineering is very complicated. Trust me. And they've gotten away with it because there's nobody to, to stand against them on the other side. Yeah. I've seen a lot of it. I've seen a lot of that. And I think that I have seen people do that. And I think that tends to be a, a way for the CTO can wave and hand wavy away things so that they don't have to get really deep and explain. I also think it's probably the sign of a, a very weak CTO CIO. I would agree. <laughs> because, I'll, because I'll tell you what, I've been a CIO of a business. The, the, there is no, if I hand wave you away and you call me out on it, I'm going to spend the next hour explaining it to you in detail about how it works. Yep. And I'm going to show that person that I know what, that I'm competent. I know why I'm doing it, but I understand what you're saying that if you have an organization that is politically looking to, for one reason or another discount the engineering team that you can then use this as a means and mechanism to, I don't know, start to build an organization that we're going to hold accountable to a metric that honestly, some consulting company is using to sell you their services. Like, I, okay. I, I think it's a niche that's being filled. Mm -hmm. Let's just find the market as we just settled on it. CTO is not capable of measuring his teams effectively and is able to get away with it for years because you didn't know how. So now, oh, hold on. The answer there, just real quick mm -hmm. for people listening, the answer there is usually one of two things. The first is that the CTO does not have a accountability for business outcomes. Yes. Organizationally. Yep. And, and it's not clear because that's what it should be. Or the second thing is that your CTO is incompetent and he doesn't know how to actually track projects and be a leader. In, in, in a software engineering organization. So then you're almost saying that this, I'm going to repeat what you're saying, then great. This should give the CEOs the information, the need to hold them accountable because they haven't. We, sh we should give this, we should give the CEOs as a CTO. I should give the CEO the information that they need to hold me. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. But absolutely. What? Not only should I give it to him. I should let anyone that wants to use that information and, and as a basis to talk to me about potentially my deficiencies in my organization. 
because that's as a leader running that type of team, that that is what I am there for. The thing I'm saying, and I'm agreeing with you, is 100% true. But now I'm saying what's going to happen is those badly CTOs aren't going to be replaced. They're yeah. going to get I see. McKinsey put on top of them, and they're going to implement yeah. this bad McKinsey system. And you're going to have engineering organizations that had a bad CTO, but still were doing a reasonable yes. job. And the whole industry is going to have to deal with a whole quagmire of bullshit again. You're right. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. This is the... This is the HR version of a PIP plan for a normal employee. This is what they do for a stupid CTO that was a salesman that went to, uh, was it Microsoft MCSE class 15 years ago. This is going to be a YouTube short. This whole, that's in this section right here. That one liner, YouTube short. (laughs) But listen, those types of people who are in leadership organizations for large companies, they need a systematic way to try to get alpha, for lack of a better word, about how their organization operates. Some teams do Six Sigma, some teams do different things. Uh, Scrum was one of them. You need, as a business, that as someone running a business as an executive, you need to figure out with your counterparts what that's going to be for your organization. And you need to stick to it and execute on it. Otherwise, Chaos. Uh, 100%. 100%. I've never seen it. I've, I, I wish I could say I've, it's, I've seen more bad than good, more good than bad, but I, I think it's been more bad than good. I'm 500. <laughs> A coin flip. <laughs> I guess I'm slightly better. No, but I, I've been at smaller firms. And a lot of the smaller firms, in fact, it's you, not easy. It's not easy. It's not. And it's also maturity level. They, one of the CTOs I used to work for. I do. So it's just a small and world. It, it's, he look, yeah. And it also depends on the organization you're working in. And like you said, company size, like the size of the company entirely depends on the how hard it is for you to do any type of anything like this right it's because in a small company 200 people isn't that hard the span of control hold on it shouldn't be that hard it shouldn't be that hard the span of control is is relatively it is in a company of a thousand people it's still, it's not hard, but you need to be, you need to spend, someone needs to ha- be employed to spend time to make sure that part of your company, the ethos, th- that culture you want is, you got to invest in it. And it's getting the point where having the metrics that are important aren't the only thing, but they start to become useful. Yeah, because they give now, you signal in the noise. Now, if you're being yeah. managed, but that's when you can start using numbers to start seeing signal and noise. Because going and talking to a thousand people is no longer a viable opportunity. At two hundred, you can talk to everybody every year. Not only is it not only is it not viable, but the amount of human output in data we can oh. talk about petaflops or whatever. But per day, 
at an organization that size is a, just to employ those people for eight hours a day. Think oh about my that. God. And so now wait, wait. we just said that you need. Thank you for George. Uh, no, thank you for George holding this conversation. Hot seat. I, I, you might hear right there. Yeah, I had to. So that's a thousand, 10,000, an organization of 10,000 people. You now need, I would say, an order of magnitude of more people that you had at the thousand person working on culture and keeping that organization as tight, as focused. Uh, I actually think that you can't keep it as tight. I think that you, but you need even, it takes a unbelievably more to keep even a monicum of that focus. Because at 10,000 people, you have whole hundreds of people that are off doing things outside of the keep. And I think, so we've been, we use, you know, 100,000, 10,000. I think it gets even worse by the thousand after that. So you're saying, so you're saying 10,000, I'm saying 11,000 is not as bad as like a thousand to 10,000, like but like logarithmic. Yeah. It's like a logarithmic. Yeah. So like 20,000 is just, again, if you have to think about what that means, the revenue, the growth, the company in order to operate in a public market, it's most of us probably, yet it has to be. Uh, there is a number I read and, and it was about managing teams and it was a number that it was, and it even applies into this and it gives you a sense of the scale. You're a manager, doesn't matter the size, 30% of the people are unhappy with you. Fine. You have managed a hundred people, 30 people are unhappy with the decisions you make in some way, shape or form. At 10,000, that's 3,000 people are unhappy with the decision you're making. <laughs> at 20 what at the president of the united oh, states uh, that's yeah we don't need to go there but you're right at twenty thousand, yeah that's six thousand that's, that's a small city that's a that's small city's worth of people unhappy with the decisions you're making they're all different and, they're unhappy for all different reasons and depending on the type of and here's even worse depending the knowing how companies grow that actually might be like a whole just one division yeah. That is, all, was an acquisition. So that's been my m metric. When I read that, that sank into my brain in such a way. And I'm like, it changed how I thought about managing. Particularly <laughs> as it got bigger. I, it made sense. Oh, making 30 people, 100 people, who cares? At that point, knowing those numbers, you should just focus on doing the right thing. <laughs> because it doesn't really matter. Yes. But that, that, uh, more importantly, that is that. It's that should be the numbers that any point would get point in time, but it also means that they can sink the boat. So you have to have checks and balances. You have to have a way for that. You aren't making sure those unhappy people are going left when you're trying to go right. Is that the organization and the culture is still pulling them to the right direction because, and that's where I think culture comes in. It's culture comes in when somebody is, they're unhappy with decisions. And they feel like everybody, I still got to be part of this ship. So I am going to go left too. I'm not going to fuck off. I might fuck off and not do my job much or put in a lot of effort, but I'm not going to fuck off and say, oh, fuck you. I'm going to lock everybody out. I'm not going to, 
or I'm going to go tell customers like, oh yeah, this is a horrible place to be. I think that's where culture keeps those 30% from going really sideways and really distracting the organization in splitting and fracturing them. And that, that's something I think is the most dangerous part of losing culture. Losing control of the culture is because then that 30, I, you never know where they're going to go. And I also think it's also difficult with some companies nowadays when through acquisitions, those culture lines could even. That's something I've never had to deal with. And it's something that I can guess at, but I've never actively done. And I know you have. And it's just, it seems like some of the hardest problems ever. It's, it is, I've done it in my career. I'm not going to claim to be like, but I've done it a few times. It, again, I'd say coin flip. It, it's, there's no one way to go in and, and do it. And there's sometimes you need some, it depends on the, the maturity. I think you mentioned earlier of an organization. Do you actually want to change the culture? Sometimes as a company acquiring another company, you just, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think a good way to, a good way to a company to, to think about that with is with Microsoft started out when they did the acquisition of GitHub. They didn't change the culture of GitHub internally for the first few years. They did it slowly. And I don't know if, I don't know, I know people that were there. I don't people don't know people at the Microsoft corporate side, but I don't necessarily think it was a aggressive rip the culture out of GitHub. I think it was a natural attrition of people that just left and that culture changed. And, and I think that should be normal, actually, because the people at GitHub had more opportunities. They could sit there and go, hey, I want to try going and doing development in cloud platforms like infrastructure and Azure. Yeah. And so you'll have them spread out and then you'll have people little like, oh, I love this tool. I want to go be a part of the hip hot thing for that was in Azure or was in Office 365 or whatever. And they move there and you're going to have the thermodynamics of people and culture. And, and GitHub just didn't have a chance over time. And if you went slow, Microsoft was going to. It's just, just how thermodynamics works. I was at an organization, and I was not. I was at Peon when it bought a much, much larger organization. So it was a eleven thousand person firm buying a sixty five thousand legacy person legacy town. Wait a second. Wow. Okay. So I've been in that situation. It's that is a, they fail. No, 100%. The legacy telco us West culture one offensive butts. No, in I mean, it had like the CEO that did the purchase was like, no, we're going to take our culture forward. I don't mind missing the company. It's quest communications because it's so long ago. I'm taking it forward. And I'm like, I will like our culture is going to live on. We're buying them. We need, they need us more than me. Yeah. They had 72 buildings. We had one. They owned literally the downtown of Denver. You couldn't go and visit them without looking around and bumping into literally entire companies that service other employees of this company. That culture was going nowhere. It didn't matter that the company wasn't profitable. It didn't matter that... DSL sales were going to the hell in a handbasket and they couldn't sell any pot lines and that data centers were fucking the most valuable thing in the world. And that's what we were doing at the time. It didn't matter. The culture became the telcos. 
because it was 65,000 people versus 10,000. And we took the all, they had 95 year leases. Of course, they, you got, we got rid of our short term leases and, and kept our data centers and merged into theirs because everything in financial says they've been established forever. They have the unbelievable best rates, the cheapest everything. Okay. Guess mm-hmm. what? It was a culture of US West in a matter of two years. I've been in that situation and I can say that I survived. I was the the, comp- the smaller company coming in and changing the bigger company and I survived, but it wasn't easy. And so the smaller company's culture won out. Yeah. That's impressive. Now, I, I think, I think it's important to know that the difference wasn't 1,000 to 65,000, but it still was is significant, right? But yeah, I mean, it, it did. And it, it wasn't easy and it took a lot of hard business and culture decisions, but I don't necessarily think, I don't like to think that it won one out over the other. I think it was the merging, but if you had to look at which one was more, it's the one, the smaller one. Yeah. That's impressive. Whoever was able to make that happen by and large is impressive because I, it's, that's, that is a uphill battle to deal with that much inertia of a different organization and what they do. And, but then again, we're also talking about a legacy telco. So you don't change anything about those legacy, legacy telcos. I don't, I, I think that they're, they're probably one of the only like organizations, I guess, other than like legacy electric companies, but there's like a legacy telco. That's some crazy just history and how things were. Yeah. Literally like you go there and. They, they would, you talk to people in the city of Denver and you'd be like, yeah, no, my grandpa worked here and he used to climb yeah. poles throughout the entire West to help. Hey, really? And I'm like, I, I, I'm going to go write, route some VLANs over there. Cause there's an outage. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And it's like the, the realization that not a short time ago, but that the layer that they were operating on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was interesting. But then I went to a hedge fund that got even weirder. That's another story yeah. for another day. Cause could apply the print, the whole concept of derivatives, right? <laughs> like to that, I had a financial product and then someone thought of a derivative. <laughs> so we went on a tangent, but I think we're done for the night. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm going to pause for a second.